You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. All right, if you got your Bible, please open it up to the book of Esther. So we're going back to the Old Testament. So if you're trying to find it, you can be around Ruth and Nehemiah. And if you're around that area, you're getting close to the book of Esther. Well, one of the philosophical principles that I apply to the preaching diet of the church is to preach from the Old and the New Testament. That's really important to me. Uh, The entire Bible is God's Word. It's essential to have a balanced approach when it comes to preaching. Uh, It is more common in, in our culture today to have pastors and churches that really press into the New Testament and relegate the Old Testament to the bench. You know, it's like you got your starting five and then you have the people on the bench and the Old Testament kind of comes to the bench. You know, it shows up every now and then, but generally speaking, we got our starting five. Uh, There are various reasons for this approach. I heard one prominent pastor, when I say prominent, I mean his following is is massive and I think his church is like 30,000 people. It's in the South. But he said this, he says, we need to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. I couldn't believe it. In my, in my opinion, a neglect of the Old Testament is not faithful preaching. Big picture, right? There should be no unhitching of the Old Testament because the Old Testament and the New Testament are about the same message. The redemption of God's people. The redemption of God's people from sin, death, and eternal separation from God. So we want to take time to go through books like the book of Esther because it does fit in to the greater narrative, the greater storyline that we read between Genesis and Revelation. Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and Revelation, the last book of the Bible. So I picked the book of Esther for various reasons. It is a story of, of drama and redemption. You might read it, and if you used to watch like the old soap operas on daytime TV, you're just kind of like, what's going on here? There's so much drama, but it's actually meaningful drama in the book of Esther, unlike the sitcoms and the daytime TVs. It's also a story of redemption. We read about villains. We got heroes. We got the potential mass genocide of a group of people in the book of Esther. As we go through the book of Esther, you're going to see what is plain. But one of, the, one of the things that I want to do is to be pointing to you kind of what is going on behind the scenes. It's like anything else. You read, read a book and you see what is plain. You see what's literal, but there's always something more going on behind the scenes. So I pray that you will be encouraged from the book of Esther, but also challenged in this particular way. I want you to be challenged to have a a bigger view of who God is. A bigger view of a God who is always at work in creation and in particular in your life. In your life. Now, have you ever thought about the fact there's actually a lot going on that you do not see in life? Kind of made that point about what's going on in the book of Esther. And here's what I mean. Like, I could pick up my cell phone I could send a text message to somebody living in London and the moment I press send, the other person receives it, right? Like that's happening. 
but I've never actually stopped to think about what's going on behind, behind the scenes. Like, what's the system or the individuals that are actually at work to make that message go from the United States to London, England? The point is, whether I try to understand the process or not, more is going on than meets the eye. Here's another example of what you do not see in your life. Uh, pick your favorite movie. Just think in your head, what's your favorite movie? Your favorite movie has actors speaking, they are moving, they are creating scenes. The actors in your favorite film are telling you a story. But what do you not see when you watch your favorite movie? You don't see the director. You do not see the director, yet the director is arguably the most critical person in the movie. Yes, the actors have the freedom to act, but only at the behest of the director. The director is exerting a, a degree of providence over the production of the movie. And one of the theological themes we're going to be focusing on in this sermon series is the providence of God. The providence of God is a theological term that does not receive the attention that it has been accustomed to receiving throughout all of church history. Uh, you ever been to Rhode Island? The capital city of Rhode Island is Providence. It's interesting how Providence, Rhode Island, received its name. There was this guy uh, named Roger Williams. He was a pastor who was living in Massachusetts, but he gets kicked out of, of Massachusetts because of some of his beliefs. He was a, a Reformed Baptist, and a lot of people in Massachusetts were Congregationalists, and they didn't like Baptists. They're like, you got to leave. And so he's like, okay, I'm going to move to Rhode Island. And he ends up naming the city that he landed in Providence because he counted it the providence of God that he got kicked out of Massachusetts and moved to Rhode Island. In, in church history, almost all the Reformed confessions from the 15th, 16th, and 17th century, almost all of them have a massive chapter called the divine providence of God. Here is one particular confession. It's actually the Belgic Confession. Article 13. This was written in 1561. I just want you to listen to these words because it really helps sum up in a great way the providence of God. And by the way, our confession of faith has something similar, but this particular confession really sums up what we're talking about. We believe that the same God, after he created all things, did not forsake them or give them up to fortune or chance, but that he rules and governs them according to his holy will, so that nothing happens in this world without his appointment. Nevertheless, he is the author, or nor can he be changed with the sins which are committed, for his power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he orders and executes his work in the most excellent and just manner, even when devils and wicked men act unjustly. So here's a little bit of what he's saying here. Even though evil people exist, even though sin exists, God's plan and purposes are always accomplished. Period. That's the providence of God. The providence of God isn't God looking into the future and in light of what he sees in the future, he brings about a particular outcome, kind of like when you got a crystal ball, right? You're just looking into it like, what's the future hold? Like, okay, now I'm going to react in light of what I see. That's not the providence of God. God isn't trying to predict the future, but God has set the future. 
The providence of God is about God providing, supporting, supplying, and ensuring sustenance to his creation, knowing full well what the future holds. Let's say you plan on to go on a picnic, right? And you make provisions before you arrive at the place you're going to have the picnic. For God, he already knows the time, the location, and everything you need for the picnic. God does not react to what you need. He has already supplied everything you need. It's all in the picnic basket. God not only knows what is ahead to make provision for his purposes, but he infallibly accomplishes what he sets out to do. Like here's the fundamental, if I had to to sum up the providence of God to this, here would be the fundamental element regarding the providence of God. God acts. He's acting. Not like an actor, but he's, he's actually involved in his creation. Here's a, a helpful thought from um, Pastor John Piper regarding the providence of God. He says, Wherever God is looking, God is acting. In other words, there is a profound theological reason why God's providence does not merely mean his seeing, but rather his seeing too. Like John Piper, the guy I just referenced, this is his, one of his latest books on providence, this entire book on the providence of God. And he just goes through scripture showing us the providence of God. I mean, this is not light reading. I mean, we're going to get to the book of Esther in a moment, but outside of Esther, where do we see the providence of God in the Bible? It's everywhere. For example, the book of Exodus is chock full of the providence of God. Here's just like a few examples. We see the providence of God when Israel comes up to the Red Sea and all of a sudden it's split. And then they walk right through. When Israel is wandering through the desert, God provided their needs. Hungry, boom, manna. Thirsty, you know, here's the rock. (laughs) Hit the rock with a stick, you got water. That's the providence of God. Here's another well-known example or where we see the providence of God. Again, we don't read that word in Scripture, but we see it. You ever read the book of Daniel? Daniel's in the lion's den. And the lions are not attacking Daniel. Now, why is that? Is that because Daniel is a lion tamer? No, of course not. It's the providence of God saving Daniel's life for God's good purposes. In the New Testament, We see how God, in the flesh, constantly provides for the need of his people, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, we can start start with the birth of Christ. That that was not going to happen unless God providentially willed it. We read about the multiple stories of Jesus feeding thousands of people with what? A few loaves and a few fish. That's the providence of God. Jesus calms the storm in the New Testament, and and the disciples are really grateful when he calmed the storm. And the list goes on and on and on where we see God providentially at work. With all these examples, I am pointing out the more remarkable moments of God's providence in the Bible. The remarkable examples help to point out that there is more going on than what we initially see. When something extraordinary or crazy happens, we all take note, right? Like if I would bring the loaves and the fish in front of you right now, just a few, and I would multiply that for thousands, you'd probably take note. Like, whoa, that's not supposed to happen that way. 
However, we must never forget that God is always at work in the remarkable and in the mundane. You'll notice there are no amazing stories of God's providence in the book of Esther. I don't know if you've ever read through it, but if you've read through it, it is a very unremarkable book in many respects. There are no miracles. You don't read about manna from heaven or water coming from a rock in the book of Esther. But God is at work in all aspects of the ordinary life. Like the director of a movie, he makes the magic happen throughout the entire movie, however remarkable it might be or unremarkable it might be. Uh, on Friday, I emailed the church um, a blog from Table Talk magazine. You may have received it in your email. The article was entitled, Invisible Providence. The author makes the same point that I'm making about the providence of God in the mundane moments of life. Here's a snippet of the article. I found it helpful. And I quote, But scripture, through books like Esther, portrays the normative way in which God has chosen to exercise his sovereignty. Through invisible providence, incognito behind-the-scenes action, like a masterful play director who is behind the stage throughout the entirety of the show, orchestrating every event until the curtain closes without ever being seen directly. You make choices throughout your life, but more, once again, more is going on than what meets the eye. What we see in Holy Scripture is that the providence of God flows out of, another theological word here, flows out of the sovereignty of God. If the sovereignty of God means that God has authority and control over all things, then the providence of God describes the way God is actually working in history. God did not create the universe and then like sit back in the recliner, grab the Mai Tai, and said, all is good. That's not what happened. God continues to engage and sustain his creation. We read in Hebrews 1 that God the Son continues to uphold the universe by the word of his power. God is not on the recliner, but he is sitting in the director's chair, working out all things for our good and for his glory. If God is providentially at work in what he has created, the question I want to ask is, what does this mean for your life? For you, a man or woman created in God's image. You, who were created in God's image in the crown jewel of his creation. God was at work in your life, providentially, on your wedding day. God was there with you at the funeral. God was near at the birth of your child. God's providence can be seen when you woke up this morning. God is providentially out at work in your life when everything's great. You're kind of on that mountaintop, right? And God is providentially at work in your life even when it seems like God is like a thousand miles away. Even when God seems distant, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he is not. The same God who created the universe is the same God at work in your life to bring about his plan and purpose. Now, 
does the providence of God, this is a question that comes up all the time, and again, I'm trying to lay the theological foundation because this theme will play itself out all throughout the book of Esther. But when it comes to talking about the providence of God, this question constantly comes up. Does the providence of God negate your actions and responsibility? Right? In other words, if God is sovereign over all things and God is providentially bringing about his plan and purpose, are you exempt from the responsibility and consequences from your actions? And the answer is absolutely not. As we will see in the book of Esther, God uses the good and evil actions of men to bring about his plan and purpose. So in light of what we know about the providence of God, how is God's providence at work in particular in the book of Esther? With all that as the introduction, let's begin our journey in Esther. Let me first take you back to the 5th century BC, five centuries before the birth of Christ, and we are in the city of Susa. Susa would be kind of like modern-day Iran, a city in modern-day Iran. So that's geographically speaking, you kind of orientate yourself. But before Islam became the dominant religion and force in the region, the area was ruled by the Persians. Decades before the Persians, the region was ruled by the Babylonians and the Assyrians, for that matter. And after the Persians, the Greeks would come in and take over the region. Then after the Greeks, we got the Romans. So a lot of changing of hands in the land throughout the centuries. At the time of Esther, King Xerxes, also known as King Ashuerus, ruled over the Persian Empire. So we have a person that we're going to begin to identify with in the book of Esther, King Ashuerus. King Ashuerus was not a good king. He was unpredictable, childish, easily swayed. Ashuerus was more concerned about having a good time than ruling his kingdom with justice. Now, here's the quick overview of the story of Esther. The book of Esther opens up with the king throwing a party, throwing a banquet. We read in chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, drinks were served in golden vessels. Like, you know, y'all might have silver, great. This dude's using gold, golden golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was accorded to his edict. And here's the edict. There is no compulsion. That sounds good. You do whatever you want to do, right? That's kind of what he's saying. You want one glass? Great. You want to have 50? Great. But here's the deal. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his place to do as much as he desired. King Ashuerus is saying, whatever your desire is, go ahead and do. So if you want a window into the life of Ashuerus, who we're going to be reading about from the first chapter all the way to the last chapter of of Esther, if you want a window into his life and leadership, it is summed up with, with these particular words, unbridled personal desire. You do you. There is no self-control or consideration for another. Life is a party, and the party is really all about King Ashuerus. King Ashuerus loves himself some King Ashuerus. So we should not be surprised that the king became upset when his current queen, Queen Vashti, refused to join him when she was called. King Ashuerus was having the party. Queen Vashti was having another party. And King Ashuerus is like, hey, go get Queen Vashti. I want her to come in. Why? I'm going to show her off. And Queen Vashti was like, "Uh uh-uh, I ain't doing it. I've done that too many times. 
I'm over it. And the moment she refused is the moment she was no longer queen. Queen Vashti's actions, though, allowed for the ascent of Esther. And we're going to be reading about that in the next two to three weeks. Esther would eventually become queen. But here's the deal about Esther. She's a Jew. Again, just doing the overview here. She's a Jew. At this point in the story, the king doesn't know about her religion. Esther keeps her, her religion hidden. Now, there's going to be more to Esther that we're going to discover in the future. But again, just kind of laying the scene here. When you move into the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, we read about Esther's cousin Mordecai. Again, another main player in the book of Esther. Mordecai hears about a plot to kill the king, and he reports the plot. Like, you're going to need to put a pin in that because God providentially uses that later in the book of Esther. We also read that this guy Mordecai does not bow to the king's right-hand man, Haman. We see a lot of that in the Old Testament. We see that go back to the book of Daniel, right? Daniel was thrown in the lion's den because he worshiped God and not man. Same thing with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We see a little bit of that here with Mordecai. He would not bow down to the king's right-hand man, and that would have consequences for his life. Haman takes issue with Mordecai and all the Jews. And now Haman wants all the Jews in Persia, 129 provinces, all the Jews in Persia murdered because of the act of one man, Haman. I'm going to pick up the pace of the story here. Mordecai convinces Esther to try and stop the mandate to murder all the Jews. Mordecai and Esther are attempting to stop a mass genocide. In moments of wisdom and bravery, Queen Esther exposes the wickedness of Haman and ends up earning the king's favor. Instead of Mordecai being hanged, Haman dies. And Mordecai becomes the king's right-hand man. So Haman was the right-hand man. Now it's Mordecai by the end of the story. Instead of the Jews being murdered, the enemies of the Jews are killed. As a result, this, this feast now exists in Jewish religion called Purim, Purim, P-U-R-I-M. It was inaugurated to commemorate how the Jews were spared from mass extinction. Again, we're going to discover there's more to the story. We've got eight to ten weeks to learn about the characters and the events that they create throughout the book of Esther. But the, the story of Esther, and we're going to see this, is about dramatic reversals. And in each reversal, we see the hand of a director. So, with that as the brief overview of Esther, I wonder if you caught what I did not mention. Not once did I mention God. It is, inter it is an interesting fact that there are 66 books in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and only one book never mentions God, and it's Esther. It's the book of Esther. So why is there a book in the Bible that never mentions God? It'd be like writing a book about baseball and not talking about baseball. It'd be like you picking up a biography on George Washington and weirdly and oddly and wrongly, Washington is never mentioned in the biography. What is going on in Esther? In a, in a Bible that is all about God, why is God not mentioned in Esther? 
the book of Esther is about God dealing with his people and the world, even when God is not mentioned or recognized. You know, we, we live in a culture where God is recognized less and less. I think if you lived in America for longer than a cup of coffee, you're seeing that right in front of your eyes. You know, unfortunately, I've even met Christians who don't even mention God or the impact God is having on their life. It's just kind of absent. But just because a person does not acknowledge God does not mean he does not exist. Did King Ashuerus believe in the God of Esther and Mordecai? No, of course not. He had a different religion. But was God providentially using the, key, the king's evil actions and his personal shortcomings for, for his purposes? Yeah, you betcha. He sure was. It didn't matter if Ashuerus was acknowledging God. God was still at work. Do you want to know what else is not seen in Esther? I've kind of alluded to this already. Where are the overt miracles and signs from God in Esther? Where are they? We don't see any. So God is not mentioned, and the story lacks remarkable events. And you know what? That is actually really good news. That's really good news. This is really good news because the book of Esther shows people that God meets them in the mundane. Is your life unexciting? God is at work. Do things seem dull in your life? God is at work. God is right there. Do you live a boring life? Right? Kind of you, you get up, you have your coffee, you check into work, you check back to work, do the family thing at home or whatever, and then you go to bed, you wake up again, you drink your coffee, you go to work, get back from work, hang out with your family, go to bed, and then repeat. The book of Esther is good news because if you live that life like I do, I know God is at work. He's providentially at work. The story of Esther shows us the unspoken providence of God as we see the story go from one scene to the next. And I think and I hope the same is going to be for your life as we begin to unfold all that's going on in Esther. Even right now, God is doing a million things that we do not acknowledge. He's providentially doing a million things we don't acknowledge. So I think I can sum up God's providence and the actions of men by looking at the exchange between Queen Esther and her cousin Mordecai. If you got your Bible, go to, go to um, uh, Esther chapter 4. Chapter 4. I'm going to pick up a conversation they discuss about how to save the Jews from mass genocide. Again, we're getting at what does this relationship look like between the providence of God and my everyday life. Starting in, in verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, quote, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent, this is Mordecai talking to Esther, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and del deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. For such a time as this. What is Mordecai saying to Esther? It does not matter if Esther will be 
part of God's plan to save the Jews. God will take care of his people. However, Queen Esther, like all of us, have a choice to make. You could be a part of God's plan of redemption and be a part of his, of his doing, his sovereign doing, or you can make a choice to get off the bus. Queen Esther had an opportunity. She had a choice to join God in his grand plan of redemption. God in his providence will have his way. It is in the choice of the queen where we can see the human choices converging with the God's providence. We see how God uses the choices we make for his good purposes. In Esther, we see that God is at work, and I'm going to use two categories here, in the micro and macro ways. Here are a few examples from the book of Esther. We see the providence of God when Esther, a Jew, replaced Vashti as queen. I already mentioned that. And at the time, it's kind of a micro thing, but it's a micro event that has macro implications. We see the problems of God when Mordecai hears about the plot to kill the king. Mordecai happens, you, ever, you talk about you, that was a coincidence? Well, Mordecai happens to be at the right place at the right time to hear about the plot to murder the king. We see the problems of God when the king, unable to sleep, asks his servants to read the book, and in this book are like all the good deeds done throughout his kingdom. Now, on that particular night, the king couldn't sleep, and so he's like, oh, servants, read me this book. And he learns at that time that this guy, Mordecai, saved his life. It just happened that way. That night was the night before Mordecai was to be hanged. (laughs) Just a coincidence, right? No, it's the providence of God. Later in Esther, it just happens that Haman trips and falls into the queen, into Queen Esther, at the same time that the king walks into the room. Just kind of happened that way. No, it's the providence of God at work. When a person first reads Esther, the beauty of Esther is highlighted. The lavish life of the parties of the king are on display. The drama of the story runs through the mind. But behind everything are the machinations of God at work. In these micro-events, we see God at work through the actions of men and women. And all of this is leading, to, leading for us to see how God is at work in his macro-plan of redemption. Now, for a moment, I want to step outside the book of Esther, just for a moment, and consider your life, my life. Do you, it's a question you can literally ask yourself and answer. Do you believe God is providentially at work in your life? In light of how I've defined it, in the scriptures I've pointed you to, do you believe that God is providentially at work in your life? Not only that, do you believe the providence of God is resulting in like your salvation and, and redemption? Perhaps the ultimate plan of God, your redemption, helps you to see what is going on in those little moments of life, in those micro moments. So may I submit to you that when your grasp or when you grasp the macro plan of God, the providential micro events in your life just make so much more sense. When you see what God is doing up here through God's word, what you do in your everyday life begin to map onto that. When you grasp the macro plan of God, your trust in God in the micro events, in those moments, grows. In chapter 4, we read the scene where Esther had to trust God for the outcome. Again, a micro event that is playing into a macro situation. 
After Mordecai and Esther hatch a plan to save the Jews, Esther needs to approach the king. You don't approach the king unless you are called by the king in this context. Because if you approach the king without being called, there's a good chance that the king is going to kill you. It was possible that Esther's actions would result in her death. But we read that Esther will go, and she says to Mordecai, Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. At this micro moment of Esther's life, Esther did not know what the king would do. Queen Vashti disobeyed the king, and look what happened to her. I'm sure that's playing in the back of Esther's mind. She did not know if she would be the recipient of the bitter providence of God or the sweet providence of God. She didn't know if she was going to die or if God would use her to save the Jews. And honestly, I wonder if Esther was more concerned with saving her family than trying to walk in the will of God. I don't know. But my musings about her faith kind of misses the point. God is still providentially at work, regardless of how little or great faith she had. God was at work. And God is working through bitter and sweet providences. Now, I want to take a moment because we're going to take a moment to explain bitter and sweet providences because, again, this is going to map on to the entire story, entire book of Esther. Because we see both in the book. And we all have experienced disappointment and hardship, bitter providences. We've also experienced sweet providences, celebration and joy. You experience the bitter providence of God when the unexplainable, unfortunate event happens in your life. You receive the unexpected diagnosis from the doctor. There's a car accident. There's an unexpected bill kind of zapping your checking account. Like we're all recipients of the bitter providence of God. When Mordecai and Esther found out that their family and their faith, the Jews, were all going to be potentially murdered, that at the time feels like a bitter province. Like, how could you do this, God? I began to first hear about the bitter providence of God from a friend of mine. Um, This person's a follower of Christ. He is a husband and a father of three wonderful kids. Uh, He's actually a man I admire and I look up to. Well, out of nowhere, one of his teenage children was diagnosed with a disease. His child was in his intelligent, athletic, vibrant. But in a matter of moments, his child turned into like a shell of himself. The doctors were stumped, and frankly, they remained stumped. My friend, along with his entire family, grieved for over a year because the son that they grew up with was someone totally different, could hardly get out of bed. It was one thing to see your child go through pain and suffering, and the additional layer of pain or bitter providence is not knowing what is going on or how to cure the disease. So my friend regularly gave me updates, which allowed me to pray. And in his updates and and the conversations that we had, he constantly talked about the bitter providence of God. Here's what it was being conveyed. Here's what he was trying to convey to me as he was kind of putting in a new term into my category of terms in which I'm trying to do for you right now. He did not know why God allowed the disease to affect his child. He could not answer that question. 
but he never denied the providence and goodness of God in what was going on. There were tears, there were frustrations, there was hardship, but he clung to the bitter providence of God knowing that he is still good. He is still good. Here is what my friend acknowledges about life and God. Life is full of ups and downs, right? The road we walk is winding. There's no straight path. We live in an age of sin, brokenness, and suffering. And it's in this age before the return of Christ's second advent, when we look to God in our most challenging moments, when we experience the bitter providence of God. It's when you experience the bitter providence of God that God is actually most at work in your heart and life. The bitter providence of God is not meant to push you away from God, but actually closer to God. The story of Esther is actually full of bitter providence. Now, the other side of the providential coin is sweet, right? Everyone loves to experience the sweet providence of God. Everyone loves to be on the mountaintop. But I would like to submit to you that your ultimate experience of God's sweet providence is the salvation of your soul in the present and the future full redemption of all things to come. The bitter providences are designed to lead you toward greater faith in God and in his plan of salvation and redemption through Jesus Christ. And so when we, when we start unfolding the book of Esther, one verse at a time, we're going to see the convergence of bitter and sweet providences and how all this is leading to and showing us a greater plan of redemption. The book of Esther opens up with King Ashuerus throwing himself a party. And in the bitter providence for Queen Vashti, she is removed from not obeying the king. The king throws his party with no thought or cares about God or the consequences of his actions. The story of Esther ends with another kind of party. Again, these are these are actually great literary moves by the author of Esther. The feast of Purim was inaugurated. That's what we read at the end. Mordecai and Esther write an edict and is sent out to all 20, 129 provinces under the rule of King Ashuerus. And here's where we see the hand of God. Did Mordecai and Esther create a new Jewish holiday because of their actions? That they set out to write about this new, this, this great work that they did? No. Purim does not exist because of Mordecai and Esther. God used them, yes, but that's not why they come together even to this day and celebrate Purim. No, Purim is celebrated because they believe God saved the Jews. Again, God is never mentioned in Esther, but you cannot deny that he is there from, from beginning to end. And in the, in the weeks ahead, in the weeks ahead, I am eager to get into the details of how and why God was providentially at work in Esther, the sweet providences and the bitter providences. And I'm equally keen to see how and why God continues to be at work in your life, no matter how exciting it might be or no matter how mundane it might be. I want you to see that God is providentially at work. Let's pray and then we'll continue with our service. 
You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.